get it. Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a good week outside of podcast land. I, again, did not get to soundproof this office as I went to Seattle for Grandma's Christmas. Uh, it was a great Christmas. Got to see a lot of the family. Um, love going home. Love going home and spending time with all of them. So with that being said, I was not too concerned about soundproof in the office as this is the last episode of the year. That's right. We will have a couple of bonus episodes for Christmas and the new year because both of them drop on our normal Wednesday drop. But after that, Born the Battle will be on a hiatus as we migrate podcast hosting sites and fire up the VA Podcast Network. Um, pretty excited about this as this has been in development even before my involvement in Born the Battle. So starting in 2020, we will be releasing and supporting other podcasts from all throughout the VA. Currently, we have three shows in development. One is on VA research. One is on a veteran suicide prevention, and one will feature American citizens who are not veterans, but feel the need to give back to the veteran community. And I hope we bring you many, many more. So expect all of that to drop in 2020. And when they drop, I'll tell you where and how to get them on your podcatcher of choice. Noticed a couple ratings this week. We are almost at 120 ratings, so thank you. However, no reviews this week. Remember, the more you rate review, and subscribe to this podcast, the better chance other veterans out in podcast land get a chance to listen in and hear not only these great stories about these great veterans, but the benefits breakdown episodes and the information provided in the news releases. Speaking of news releases, we have three this week. First one says, for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will begin deciding Blue Water Navy Vietnam Veterans Act of 2019 claims on January 1, 2020, extending the presumption of herbicide exposure that involves toxins such as Agent Orange to veterans who served in the offshore waters of the Republic of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Prior to this measure, only Vietnam veterans who served on the ground in Vietnam or within Vietnam's inland waterways were eligible to receive disability compensation and other benefits based on a presumption of herbicide exposure. Signed into law June 25th, the law specifically affects Blue Water Navy veterans who served as far as 12 nautical miles offshore of the Republic of Vietnam between January 6th, 1962 and May 7th, 1975, as well as veterans who served in the Korean demilitarized zone between January 1, 1967 and August 31st of 1971. These veterans can apply for disability compensation and other benefits if they have since developed one of 14 conditions that are presumed to be related to exposure to herbicides, such as, such as Agent Orange. Veterans do not need to prove that they were exposed to herbicides. Again, veterans do not need to prove that they were exposed to herbicides. The specific conditions can be found by searching Agent Orange on www.va. Gov, and also put a list in the blog on blogs.va.gov of the 14 conditions. I'll put the link right in there. In addition to affected veterans still living, qualifying recipients are also certain survivors of deceased B-52 
BWN and Korean DMZ veterans. Survivors can file claims for benefits based on the veteran service if the veteran died from at least one of the 14 presumptive conditions associated with Agent Orange. The law also provides benefits for children born with spina bifida if their, pa- if their parent is or was a veteran with certain verified service in Thailand during a specific period. The Blue Water Navy Act also includes provisions affecting the VA home loan program. The law creates more access for veterans to obtain no down payment home loans, regardless of loan amount, and the home loan funding fee is reduced is reduced for eligible reservists and National Guard borrowers who use their home loan benefits for the first time. Certain Purple Heart recipients do not pay a funding fee at all. Veterans who want to file an initial claim for an herbicide-related disability can use VA Form 21-526EZ. That's VA Form 21-526EZ. The application for disability the application for disability compensation and related compensation benefits or work with a VA recognized veterans service organization to assist with the application process. Veterans may also contact their state veterans affair office. Blue water Navy veterans who previously filed a claim seeking service connected for one of the 14 presumptive conditions that was denied by VA may provide or identify any new and relevant information regarding their claim when reapplying to reapply Veterans may use VA Form 20-0995, the Decision Review Request Supplemental Claim. As a result of the new law, VA will automatically review claims that are currently in the VA review process or currently under appeal. For more information about Blue Water Navy Act and the changes that will take effect, visit www.benefits.va.gov forward slash Benefits forward slash blue hyphen water hyphen navy dot ASP. And I'll put a lot of the links in this show notes at blogs.va.gov. Just put in the, in the show notes there. All right. Next one says for immediate release, VA announces proposal to increase access to dental care. The Department of Veterans Affairs announced it has submitted to Congress a waiver request and pilot program under Section 152 of the VA Maintaining Internal Systems and Strengthening Integrated Outside Networks Act of 2018, otherwise known as the Mission Act. Uh, I did not know what the Mission Act stood for, and that is a mouthful. To improve access to dental care for veterans. The Mission Act authorizes VA to submit statutory waivers to Congress for the purpose of testing service delivery models to improve the quality of care for America's veterans. Under the existing statute, VA has limited authority to provide dental services for veterans. With this waiver request, VA is submitting a proposal to increase access to dental services for enrolled veterans ineligible for dental services through VA by connecting them with a community-based pro bono or discounted dental service provider. For more information on the Mission Act, you can go to Mission Act, all one word, missionact.va.gov. Okay, and finally, says this one says for immediate release, VA and Walmart open telehealth locations to serve veterans in rural areas. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and Walmart cut the ribbon in Asheboro, North Carolina, December 10th for a new VA-led accessing telehealth through local area stations, otherwise known as Atlas Services Pilot Location. 
Uh, so basically, it's, an, it's a new Atlas pilot location at a Walmart in Asheboro, North Carolina. Walmart has donated equipment and space at five sites as part of a, as part of a pilot initiative allowing veterans to meet with a VA provider in a private room via video technology. VA telehealth clinical services vary by location and may include primary care, nutrition, mental health, and social work. Last fiscal year, there were more than 1.3 million telehealth encounters with more than 490,000 veterans, which was more than any other telehealth service in the United States. Other telehealth pilot sites are in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa. For more information on Atlas and this program, you can go to connectedcare.va.gov forward slash partners forward slash Atlas. All right. So I got a question for you. Should every American citizen serve in the military? Should women be required to register for the selective service, otherwise known as the draft? What should the future of the selective service look like? Our guest came on Born the Battle to talk about the two years worth of data that the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service has gathered to answer those questions, and they still want to receive feedback from you, their fellow veterans. And the clock is ticking. The deadline for said feedback is December 31st, 2019, so in like two weeks. And they're going to tell you exactly how to get your input to them. So without further ado, I give it to you, Navy veteran Sean Skelly and Marine Corps veteran Ed Allard. Enjoy. Sean, Ed, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, you know, it's, uh, as I understand it, both of you are veterans. That's and, and you both work on uh, the National Commission of Military, National, and Public Service. Did I get that right? Yes, yep. man. Awesome. Um, which I think, for me personally, I think it's extremely important. Um you both have, and your commission has the potential to provide input that could potentially help shape the future of the selective service system. Um, you know, of course, based on how Congress receives your findings, right? Correct. Um, you have the ability to shape that that whole program's future regulations, rules, and, and its registry. So, uh, real quick, please give me a quick introduction and a quick, quick synopsis of your military career. Sean Skelly, Commander, USN, retired. Um, turns out as a uh as a teenager, my mother's best friend, excuse my mother's, my grandmother's best friend, her husband was a Marine pilot in World War II, Guadalcanal, RD3s. Um, and their son was one of the first F-14 Tomcat pilots in the Navy. Oh, wow. Um, and those two gentlemen became my mentor with regard to Navy. And I grew up on Long Island, the cradle of naval aviation manufacturing. The Grumman, Grumman Corporation built every aircraft on the flight deck from the 60s, practically every aircraft on the flight deck from the 60s through the 90s. Oh, wow. Um, many of my um, classmates in school, their parents worked building those airplanes. Um, so I gravitated that way, got interested in Navy, Navy RTC scholarship, actually wound up making it through flight school as a naval flight officer onto the fleet flying the S-3 Viking Oh wow! Um, for 20 years, War Hoover. Um, and uh, after I got out, I did actually, uh, my dad was Marine, so I was already leaning towards um, the concepts of service 
And it wound up that in my uh, career, the last tour I did as a naval officer, as a commander, was attached to the Marine Corps at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, where I um, directed the Marine Corps IED Working Group, coordinating the service-wide effort on IEDs, Okay, which was a real honor to be a part of that fight. Down there in Quantico? Quantico. And Ed? Um, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, I learned something about Sean I did not know. Uh, She's always been kidding me about being a former Marine, so uh, <laughs> it's good to know you have Marine blood in you, Shan. Um, I started out, uh, I had an appointment to the Naval Academy. Uh, I was walking down the streets in Abilene, Texas, and I saw uh, a jet uh, being uh, prominently displayed, and, and I looked at it, and it said, I'll never forget, it said, uh, do you want to fly one of these? And I cut my teeth on aircraft, so uh, we used to have the Thunderbirds come over to the house. My father was in the uh, old Army Air Corps and Air Force. So I looked at that and I said, uh, what do I have to do? So I went in and he said, uh, the recruiter said, you, you take this exam. If you do well, you you can uh, go to 12 weeks of boot camp and uh, at uh, San Diego and then go to flight school. So long story short, I went through the boot camp, came out, got my dress blues, my little PFC stripe, went up before an 06, which you know is, is God in, in the Marine Corps. Absolutely. And uh, I said, thank you, sir. Appreciate your saluting me for being the honor man of the platoon. I appreciate the blues. Where did I go? When did I go to Quantico? And he looked at me and said, son, didn't they tell you? I said, tell me what, sir? He said, they canceled that program. Uh, oh, no. So within a heartbeat, a PFC talking to an 06. And I said, well, sir, I lived up to my part of the bargain. Uh, it looks like the Marine Corps didn't live up to theirs. I'm out of here. And he said, son, you don't understand how the Marine Corps works. And I said, sir, you don't understand who I know. So anyway, long story short, ended up still getting my engineering training. Uh, went to every school the Marines had. Uh, went to two two tours, combat tours in Vietnam, 67 through 69. Tough years. Volunteered uh, that offensive, as you know. Yeah. Uh, came out of that, uh, uh, picked up a commission, uh, uh, rose up through the ranks in a couple of years as a captain. After that, I got out and uh, uh, came back to Washington, D.C., was literally shot at on the streets of Washington, D.C. It's a tough time back then. Had battery acid thrown on me because I was a Marine. Uh, so I, I understand that uh, returning home uh, during that time frame was not the most positive thing you wanted to do. And, and I, I talked about this with uh, uh, Dale Dye back in episode 171. Um, I think what you gentlemen and ladies and gentlemen went through back in Vietnam helped swing the pendulum for, for us. So uh, as far as coming back from OIF and OEF, so um, if there's any solace, and I tell this to every Vietnam veteran, uh, know that you endured that, help pave the way for us, and we we always appreciate that. Thank you, and uh, we appreciate the, the service you have performed, and and those that may be listening in. Uh, veterans are the uh, the cornerstone of our nation's uh, founding, and and very richly deserve the credit they get. Now I go through airports and I hear people thanking the veterans coming back and it makes my heart feel good. It truly does. So, um, so obviously a wealth of, of public service, both in and out of the military, in and out of the government. Uh, Edward, in your case, uh, with some nonprofits, uh, we uh, looked through your, some of your bio there. Um, 
both of you have a lot of public service after your military career. Why is that important for both of you? It's the place where I found that I can keep applying myself in the same way we all learn to in uniform, that the mission is bigger than you, that you're never the sole person that works on a mission or is responsible for a mission being completed. If it's ever completed in your tenure, I've always referred to the to the big things that we do, whether it's in uniform or what I learned in my time in um, government service was, you know, it's, it's almost like Sisyphus a little bit and you have to understand that you're there to spend your time pushing on a big rock for the right reasons, pulling on the big rope. And if you think you're going to dance a touchdown dance, then it's probably not the right line of work for you because it doesn't happen very often. Mm. Yeah, you get a first down, you might move it over a particular rocky patch of terrain, but you're there to fight the fight in many different ways for the right reasons because most of the most of the good fights are near constant fights good government providing services to our citizens protecting the nation all those things are enduring you know things go up and down and you need to fix certain things or address certain pop-ups but it's almost an internal enduring kind of mission and having people around you that are at one with that mindset is a nice place to be. I enjoyed my time in the corporate space, a short period of time, but it was it was different. I learned a lot from it. Actually. Sure, absolutely. It's, a, it's a really valuable time to understand. You get out of the uniform and figure out. That's when you really learn what you took out of it and what it, how it molded you, how it shaped you, and then you take that and go, oh, I find a place to reapply that again within the government. Within the you know, government, I think once you get out and you go into the private sector a little bit. You see those, those those trends, those those current things that are current. Sometimes the government's a little a little far behind, um, but uh, yeah, you're able to go back and go, okay, learn from here, go back to doing. That's 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 good. That's awesome. Uh, for me, it's a little bit different. I took a fairly circuitous route. I'm a little older, uh, no wiser, uh, <laughs> but. Um, after I got out of uh, and resigned my commission, I joined the United Way uh, of America, and it was exactly the transition I needed. I had gone from death and destruction uh, at a very high level to uh, building and creating, and it's exactly what I needed uh, on to, on the road to recovery, if you will. Um, and then after that, uh, I started working in political campaigns. John Glenn for president was my first. And that just kind of launched a whole nother uh, series of events. And since then, I've held uh, three or four presidential appointments. So yeah. uh, it's kind of in my blood now. Uh, it is an opportunity to continue to give back to the, this nation, which I continue to believe, although I've traveled the world, it's the greatest in the world. Absolutely. Okay, so you, but you both now work on the National uh, Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Um, how did this commission come about? Actually, it came about with the, uh, I think it was a 2018 NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. Um, and it was really the end product of uh, the efforts of uh, uh, Senator McCain and Reid uh, in the Senate and trying to figure out a way to to do something that had never been done before. Um, an in-depth analysis, not only of the selective service, uh, but also of military, national, and public service. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time in the history of our nation that that uh, triad, if you will, actually four uh, entities have been looked at as a, as a whole. 
We were a three-year commission. We were appointed by uh, President Obama and the key leadership of Congress. Uh, the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, both ranking and chair, also had appointments. So there are 11 of us. So straight down the aisle, this thing was like, hey, maybe we should all take a look at this. Exactly. Roger. Very well, good. What I'd add is the, the original event that started things in motion was the um, 2015 decision by the Secretary of Defense at that time, Ash Carter, to open up all the final positions in the military. All occupational specialties were open to women for them to attempt to qualify, to, yeah. which, which essentially in shorthand opening combat positions, ground combat positions to women, which then raised the question of if those positions are open, should women be asked to read, be required to register for the selective service system? Because that's an issue that had come up before in court. Because before that, it wasn't a. It, it's not a thing currently, right? It is not currently a requirement. Roger. So, so what is the the overall mission or the overall purpose of this three year commission? Because this, this commission does have an end date, correct? Correct. Right. So, what's the overall purpose and the mission? Uh, actually, our vision is to to and, and excite uh, people about providing service, be it military, national, or public service. So we're, we've adopted the, the term uh, inspire to the letter to serve, and our website is inspiretoserve.gov, uh, and we invite people to go to that because we're still soliciting information. We've been in, in activity for about two years now. Yeah. Uh, we do have a, a termination date of, I think it's in September of 2020, uh, we are still soliciting information, but we do have a drop dead date of 31 uh, December of this year. Oh, that's coming up. Yeah, it's, it's coming, coming up very, up. very soon. So this podcast comes up to anybody that, that signs up for our email, li our email list. And uh, as of right now, that's over 9 million plus veterans. That's so, great. you know, even let's hope for even a 10 percent click open rate, you know, and, and there you get some feedback from veterans. It's, it's awesome. Um so the commission's two primary tasks, uh, from what I've read, is to review the selective service registration process and examine and recommend ways to increase participation in military, national, and public service to strengthen our nation. Uh, since the commission's been formed, uh, what have you all learned? Well, to be honest, I know that's a pretty broad question. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, it, it it goes a little bit further back than that. First, uh, the question is, is there still a need for the selective service? Mm. It's been like 45 years. We've been all volunteer force. And yeah. and although we've been fighting for what, almost 20 years uh, in constant combat, it, it seems that while not quite broken, it's very strained, but it's still doing the job. And uh, so that was our first question as to whether or not the selective service uh, should continue to exist. And then if it does exist, then should we make modifications given that it's been around since 1917, if you will. Roger. Uh, Sean, what, what do you think is one of the biggest things that you, you think the commission has learned since it started? The passion that there is amongst Americans to serve their neighbors, their communities and their nation. It's no one should doubt that those Ameri what everybody generally believes to be American ideals of service are real and are active across the country at all levels. That's awesome to hear. So where we've uh, concentrated, where, where you've mentioned in our mission and our mandate, 
is to increase the number of opportunities for people to do that outside of the selective service uh, question we have to examine. But it's how do we increase opportunities for people to serve? Because there's a definite demand for opportunities mm -hmm. for people to serve in all kinds of different ways. And one thing that we're very keen to make sure that people understand is anything that we're looking at from a, with relationship to a federal government perspective, the Corporation for National and Community Service distributes a billion plus dollars a year in addition to what the Peace Corps does um, that finds its way down in part to state um, service organizations, which then finds its way down to local places where it's often matched up with local donor dollars and state and local dollars to make grants for different um, charity and volunteer service organizations that do good in local communities. But that doesn't eliminate the pride and the impact that goes on with people who serve through their church, through civic organizations like Kiwanis and, and the like, people who serve through their companies. You know, um, corporate social responsibility is an increasingly important thing in our communities out there, companies that care, companies that want employees who want to give back and, and make sure that they incorporate those things. They actually use it to stay competitive for talent. Yeah, it, It's a big deal. And that this is a layer over the top that helps nurture all of those things. But overall, you're seeing like an overall want to serve in some capacity, whether it be in military or, or at some other civic service. So yeah. you're looking at the, not just the military, you're, you're not looking at a selective service, you're looking at like the deep roots of service, period. We have been across the country, um, as, as Ed mentioned, and I'm, I'm completely in concert with Ed with regard to, you know, I've been to I don't think of myself as a well-traveled person compared to some, you know, some of our compatriots who've served in the military. I've only been to 22 countries, only, right? Only, right? <laughs> Sailors and port calls. Um, but, um, but I also feel this is the greatest country on earth. And, um, and one of the ways, but I still have learned so much about it that I didn't know before. The Navy. I never thought the Navy would take me to 45 states. Yeah. In different ways, naval air. You know, um, it's easier to get there. But, um, but what I've learned about the country in this journey, we've been to um, all nine U.S. Census districts. We've been to um, fifteen states, twenty-four cities. Met over three hundred organizations while on the road. Let alone the thousands of people we've interacted with over that time. Um, it's been an incredible learning experience for me as an individual, as an American, as a veteran. It, it just makes every it helps everything make even more sense mm. as to what I did back then, what I've been doing today. Um, this is a great place, and people that are out there care for one another. And what we're looking at with regard to increasing opportunities is to how to help them help each other even more. Because really, it turns out in service, and Ed's lived this life is with his connection with the United Way and other organizations. A little bit goes a long way in terms of it's not like giving people money so they'll do things they wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. It's providing that little bit of enabling support that gets people the means to help other people. And, and it's that there's new studies, new hard research coming in all the time about how dis, disproportionate the return on investment is. One, getting $4 of impact back for every dollar spent with regard to service is actually turning out to be a low number now. Yeah. Wow. It's really and, wild. We also found out as we were going throughout the nation and holding public hearings and, and gathering insights and information that uh, awareness is a really key issue. Uh, some people are more than willing to volunteer, but they're not aware of, of, how. of how and what the opportunities are and those kinds of things. And we found that, I can it, understand was a, that. it was amazing that given the military-civilian 
divide that exists uh, with lower and lower proportions of our of our citizenry going into the military, and that's a diminishing number, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. Uh, 40% of our youth are not even aware or haven't even considered the possibility of serving in the military. And it's not so much because they don't want to, it's perhaps because they're not aware. We found that interesting. We found that that uh, a certain proportion of the United States, generally the South and the West, uh, 45 years ago provided uh, uh, probably about 40% now that figure has grown to 70% of the military. Oh, wow. So what's happening is we're going to... Everybody's from Texas or California. A, a, or or Florida or Alabama, yeah. Mississippi, or those or those states. You're absolutely right. Uh, but you always find one from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> In every unit, there's always like, all right, yeah, he's, he's Texas. Yeah, you can tell them. They have the big hat, <laughs> right? Uh, and the big boots. But no uh, cattle. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, awareness is a key issue. And so we, we're trying to, uh, as a commission, determine ways that we can, in fact, uh, enhance that opportunity for people to become aware, which we think will inspire them to serve, which is what our uh, overall objective might Got, be. Gotcha. Gotcha. What are some methods of, of and you've talked about traveling, uh, what are, what are some of your methods of gathering data and feedback from the public for the commission? Like, what have you guys, you know, that's, it's been, what, two years on the road and, and, and you've got an online presence. Um, what are some ways that you guys are getting out and making people aware of the commission? You know, I know, I know we're towards the end. But, <laughs> but it's not too late. That's right. That's right. It's not too late. The, um, we're 11 appointed commissioners. We're part time. Folks, we generally spend three to four days a month worth, worth of work on it. But we have a full time staff of professionals in the in the public engagement realm in the research realm um a couple lawyers too because they're everywhere is, but is this like a like a term for um civilian employees is it contracted like how is it gs um we have a couple of contract people in some specialist areas but we have term employees roger overall roger. and um all the comments that we've gotten in all the different forms via social media, via our website, I think, I think folks have even written into us, mailed, have mailed things to us. All those are actually data analyzed. You know, they're doing the keyword search, looking at for the topics and the like and seeing and graphing them. And we've been looking at those to see how do those resonate with what we've heard when we sit down at people. We're seeing things in the public comments that I heard sitting at a, at a little kid's table in a children's library in a thousand person town in the heart of Texas as I was having a conversation with a half dozen evangelical preachers about what their thoughts on service is. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, truly fascinating how experience. You, how do you decide on where to go? Because, you know, America's so big. That's why we started off with the census, you know. Ah, okay. Plagiarism is, a, you know, purest form of flattery. Absolutely. They figured out how to divide up the country, so we'll use those as a guide. And then we had some research criteria. We need to look at the urban areas where population are urban and suburban, exurban. Then there are the more not urban rules, a bit of a bit of a pejorative nowadays. But so we'd go to a place and then a couple of commissioners and staff would get in the cars and go long an hour or two to get to these smaller communities while some were someplace in, in, a, in a more downtown and getting those looks yeah. and, and looking to get the statistical sample and talk to folks regionally and by professions and by the types of service. So like I, I had the opportunity to talk with preachers. We had the opportunity um, 
Mr. Allard, I believe, to help facilitate us um, getting with a program in downtown Los Angeles that deals with former offenders and people who've served significant time in prison about wow. how they serve their community. And then we've talked with general officers, first time enlisted, senior NCOs, why do you serve in the military? We've talked with small town mayors who are fighting the opioid crisis and how they make use of national service and local volunteers to bring together coordinated teams along with their fire chief and their police chief and all these people come together in a place like Nashville, New Hampshire. They've got volunteers. They've got former addicts who are now counselors. They've got AmeriCorps volunteers. Yeah. All of that sitting around a table trying to figure out how to help their fellow citizens. It's really remarkable. That is America. Yeah. I, th that's, I think that's the coolest part here about your commission uh, is that you get a, you're using the census. I think it's one of the coolest things about your commission is you're using the census to get the full American picture the full American public opinion on what you're supposed to be studying. I think that's so cool. Thank you. Uh, we also uh, had hearings, public hearings, where we had experts, uh, renowned experts, come and testify. And then we purposely built in a public opinion uh, opportunity following those those. Uh, stated testimonies and it was remarkable to hear some of the things being said from the common everyday person i'm not diminishing their role as a matter of fact i'm elevating it well, yeah because we yeah. also got a lot of insights from those public comments and then we provided uh, as we did from the experts and then we also provided, that's what i love about this everyone has a voice yes yeah. so everybody cool. had a voice and we are desperately seeking additional voices yeah so again Your online presence 30 you know, 31 31 december of this year uh we're open for all public comments and the website again is inspire to the number serve.gov. I love how you, you you plug it throughout the whole show because no matter where anybody clicks on this podcast, they're they're going to get head voice go, hey, this is the website. Thank you, sir. Um, that's awesome. Through the commission, what are some myths that many feel are true about selective service that you've heard? And you're like, ah, that ain't true. Well, uh, I, I can say, having been there, uh, that... Uh, there's a having been there as in you believed in this myth? Uh, no, having oh. having been there as a part of the selective service system. Gotcha. Uh, uh, that there's a general lack of understanding and awareness about the selective service. Yeah. I mean, people don't know that young men 18 to 25 are required by law to register uh, with selective service. And if they don't, there are penalties associated with that lack of registration. And that's unfortunate because... If they do find out, sometimes it's too late to to correct their error. Yeah. So it's, it, that is a, a major problem, which, uh, frankly, the commission is looking at and trying to figure out ways to modify. If we continue the selective service, yeah. we're also trying to figure out ways to uh, modify that. Make it easier uh, for people. Make to it register. easier to, yeah. for them to register and be aware that they are registering. So is it? I mean, what's the most basic ways? Now, isn't it like getting your driver's license or, or your or your social security card? Depends on where you live. Really? So the, the the easiest and most direct way is to go to the Selective Service Systems website, and and an individual could sign up that way, or they can fill out the postcard, and uh, and send it in. Many states, not all. Um, in the District of Columbia and other places, but uh, states and territories have the ability for you to sign up while getting your driver's license. Some, um, so that's not with every state. It's no. not. Wow. So did not know that. It's depending upon where an individual lives will guide um, 
how they encounter the selective service system, whether they're given additional opportunities as opposed to just their personal responsibility under the law, mm. as Ed explained, um, to register. What are, what are some other ways that you're seeing states? Because, of course, Washington State, for me, it was driver's license. What are some other ways that you guys were seeing? Um, for instance, it's very unique to Alaska because they have their um, their wealth fund in there from, from the oil revenues where every Alaska um, resident get those with some qualifications, I believe, as to how long they've lived there and the like. But if you're if you're an Alaskan male who's not registered with the Selective Service System during an obligation, you can't qualify for that annual check. Gotcha. There's so an, that, that's so they, they, they dangle a carrot there. And they have a one. pretty and they have one of the higher <laughs> compliance rates. Yeah. Because and there's there's a check attached to so it. So they're like, hey, sign up for our okay, by the way, here's selective service. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and another way is that that when uh people apply for a Pell Grant or things like that, they're required to have a registration number with Selective Service or else they cannot get a Pell Grant. And uh, so, But we found one of the most effective ways uh, is that if we send a letter to the home of the young man at this point, uh, and perhaps even in the future, uh, if the, the mother of that young man receives the letter, believe me, the young man gets the word that they they need to register because <laughs> you're looking at tuition money, you're looking at you know yeah. college assistance, you're looking at uh, federal jobs that uh, if you don't register, you're barred from getting. If if you've ever gone on USA Jobs, I can assure you that uh, at the bottom of the of that application form, it does say, "Are you registered with Selective Service?" Yeah. And if you're not, you're not qualified for a federal job. And again, many young people are not aware of that. Yeah, I wonder how. That's checked. Anyway, I'm not HR. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I was pouring over the executive summary that was provided to me before the interview. Um, it talked about how many people value public service that we've talked like we've talked about, um, but there's some barriers that sometimes prevent them from serving. Uh, do you mind if like if we dig in to like each one of them? Please. Like I'm just going to kind of say it and just tell me what it, in layman's terms what's it what's it mean to you? Um, military service as a responsibility borne by few. Why is that a barrier? I think it's a barrier. Again, again, it gets back to awareness. Hmm. Um, back in my day, if, if you had the air show, civilians became aware at Dias Air Force Base in, Ab in uh, Abilene, Texas. Uh, they would see the jets fly over, and they would become aware, and they'd come and visit the air base. Once they got a chance to get through that gate, um, they got a whole awakening about the different type of aircraft, what different jobs are available in the military, those kinds of things, because they had exposure to it. The military is more involved in like the public. Precisely. Gotcha. And if if they did not get through that gate, see, after 9-11, uh, uh, things tightened up. Yeah. So access to the actual bases themselves what has become a barrier for people to to uh, become aware of what's available to them, and and virtually every single occupation that is exists in the in the civilian world also exists in the military world. Yeah, I'm sure you guys. I'm sure you both have had that conversation with the 18 year old kid. Hey, did you know there's over 300 jobs? No, bro. If it's if it's not in Call of Duty, they're <laughs> not going to know of it. Yeah. Um, that's one. That's one factor. Um, a, a serious factor that's actually studied by folks is to um, how the public, and especially young people, gain an appreciation of what the military does. Movies, 
video games yeah. and the like. Um, and they're not very realistic in, in many respects. Sometimes, you know, movies and other things can be lauded for their realism. How, and they're, you know, as real as anything can be in that regard, they're very limited. But they don't see the people in the rear of the gear. They don't see what makes puts the tip of the spear out there. They don't see the things that are truly involved. No, they show what's dramatic. What's the dramatic part of the military? That's the that's the two percent of what actually happens. I had yeah, a um, I had the pleasure of uh, spending some time talking with a, uh, a a portion of a group of we live here in D.C. and anybody who goes on the metro is anywhere near the mall sees groups of young people from across the country class trips all the time, and we were able to get um, one of those class trips to stop in with us and talk about things. And I had one slice of them, about thirteen kids around a table, and um, I asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up. You know, what do you want to do? And it was lawyer, doctor, banker, nurse, um, a whole bunch of other things. I said, how many, I asked them, how many of you have ever thought, just thought about whether or not you might want to serve in public service or the military? Not a hand rose and somebody kind of twitched and I call it a half. Yeah. Interesting. And I said, do you realize that every one of the things, those fields that you talked about, you can find in military service and definitely in government service, whether at the federal or, yeah. or state or even a big county or city, every profession you've got there is you can serve. Is represented somewhere in, in, Some, in some, service. Somewhere in there. And they all kind of gave me that, you know, what us older people call the RCA dog look where they kind of tilt, <laughs> stare at you and tilt their head and they, it had never gotten to them. So it's really that awareness which is driven in large part by the by the decline of our veterans' population relative to the size of my, the overall population. My father-in-law talks about that. Uh, you know, it, part of the joke about this podcast is I make it out of my in-laws' basement, just like every other podcaster. <laughs> uh, while we were uh, building my house, um, but he talks about that. He talks about you know, I joined the military because my dad was talking about it with his with his buddies on the porch, and that's the only time he ever talked about it was with his buddies. And the thing is, that's. Now becoming the most predominant factor as to why young people join is because they have immediate or that next ring out on cycles there where they have that personal connection and they believe what those people are saying that they translate and they translate the greater stories. It's not just the cool stuff, the hard stuff or the scary stuff. It's all the stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of demystified for mm -hmm. them and it's not demystified on Call of Duty. Yeah. You know, we, we talk, we've talked to the recruiters as well, which has been a fascinating experience. And they've conveyed how some young folks are like, okay, when I sign up, how long until I get to be a SEAL? It's like, <laughs> no, buddy. No, no so, time soon. So military service is a responsibility borne by few, but you get, think right now because of awareness. It's a large portion of it. Got you. Uh, national service is America's best kept secret. Why? How? I, again, it boils down to awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, a few people are aware of how many opportunities there are to serve, and and frankly, that's something that the commission is trying to head straight a, and address without hesitation. Uh, awareness is a way of educating folks, and we're also becoming more and more aware about. Uh, the fact that there is a lack of civics education in school uh, at the cost of some other items that have been put to the forefront, yeah. civics has kind of dropped off the board. And, uh, you know, if you don't learn as a young person to, to salute the flag and how basic government works and so on and so forth, then as as you become a young adult and then a, an adult, you, you lose track of the responsibility you have as a, as a citizen to this 
fine nation of this nation. Uh, again, the rights and freedoms that we hold are not free. Uh, as you well know, uh, and those in the listening audience well knows, uh, it, it comes at a tremendous cost. But it's that cost is being borne by lesser and lesser numbers because those pockets are of uh, the West and the South, if you keep going back to them, they're going to dry up. Yeah. And as people, I've had the pleasure of speaking before honor flights coming from Washington mm. to Washington, D.C. And when you see those World War II veterans coming and diminishing numbers each year, yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a personalization of what's occurring nationally on, on the military front. And that's why it's a bigger and bigger uh, divide between citizens and the military. And one thing I really love about the commission is we're not just looking at the military. Yeah. We're looking at national service, public service, all community service, service, all public service in general. Yes, sir. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, why do you think civic knowledge in, in the education system is, is lost nowadays? And from what I remember when I was a kid, I think the only time we got a civics lesson was if you were able to do on the school state senate things. And I never got a chance to do that. Right. So. Um, I think for me, it was more just um, my own self-taught, you know, going, oh, man, what are they talking about when it comes to, you know, how, do, how does a law get passed? Well, I'm, and, I'm old enough uh, to, to know when Abe Lincoln talked to me <laughs> about what you need to do in order to support the government. Uh, we, we have moved away from that. And it's, it's a lot of things pushing in. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, at education in America today, uh, we have cut our children short in many, many ways. It's not just civics. It's mathematics. It's English. Um, it's very difficult to find somebody who can write. A lot of the core competencies of just Precisely. being and educated. And we push them out. And other things have taken – there's so many hours in a day. So if you if – you, it's like that whack-a-mole yeah. toy we used to play with. If you push down on a couple of things, other things pop up. Yeah. And that's what's happening. We've been pushing down on civic education at the cost of elevating other elements yeah. uh, that are more manufacturing-driven or whatever. Uh, and when you do that, it's a limited budget, and everything costs something. There's a cost to doing something different. Maybe educating the educators, too. Who knows? Precisely. Um, going back to this executive summary, public service practice needs an overhaul. What does that mean? Because I think you, of public service for me personally, you know. So we'll take you as an example. Absolutely. Let's How, do it. How'd you get your job? This, my, jo this job. You really want to know? It, it's, it, my, it could prove illuminate, you know. My wife applied on my behalf. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> Good, good wife. She goes, um, you know, I saw you. And if you go back to the, uh, the podcast where the previous host interviewed me, um, I tell this story, but it's uh, my wife goes, hey, um, I know you know she's been taking Marines to the track. Before this, I was with NASCAR. Mm -hmm. I know she's been taking Marines to the track. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I really felt that I wanted to give them what I, what I never got, you know, like how to properly, because I was combat camera, combat videographer, and I was showing them. All right. This is what a photographer does. This is a this is a shooter. This is an editor. This is a producer. And these are the skill sets that you need for it to be for each one. So when you look, when you get out, whether you do four years or thirty years, these are the positions, and this is the skill sets that are needed. And uh, my wife saw that, and she goes, 
And she realized that I'd reached a part of my career there that I was pretty much plateaued. It was like a chief one officer five position. It was, it was nice, but there was no, there was a ceiling. And she goes, Hey, you have an interview Monday. I said, for what? She goes, uh, it's for the VA. You're going to be telling veteran stories. All right. I can mess with that. So that's how I got here. So, sorry. It was a long, was a yeah. long answer to your, to your short question, but from, see, you've, you've got a great story for, for the, for the hiring process. Okay. How long did it take from flash to bang from when you said, we want you oh, on board? Uh, three months. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah. a short one. Yeah. Not a, sure. not a lot of people can put up with a timeline. We hear six months is not uncommon at all in a yeah. lot of places. People who like to work for their government find the pursuit of a, of a government job for the right reasons. You know, there's the conversations in the public space as to the value of government workers, and that's a problem. Yeah. But when folks do step forward and want to do things, because I, I am a big fan of clean water and paved roads and safe food and safe medication and all that good stuff, which is what the average government worker does for Americans. Yep. You know, airplanes that are safe. Some from city to federal. All, all, yeah. Exactly. And they all contribute. No one level gets it all done. Yeah. Um, when they do step forward, though, the government's at a disadvantage because the, the commercial space, which is a much, which is a, the, 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 the full economy, is a behemoth compared to the federal government. The federal government's massive. It's yeah. one of the largest employers of people in the world. But at the same time, it doesn't move as fast as individual corporations out there, big Absolutely. and small. Some of the most talented people who want to, to serve their country are not going to wait around. Sometimes they do. They'll keep. They'll keep. You know. They'll check their email. They'll. 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 They'll listen to that voicemail. But if it doesn't come, or if it doesn't come soon enough, they will have moved on. Yeah. When we've heard, we've heard tales of of uh, young people who graduate from college programs that are in dire need, high tech, and science and the like, and they go to their job fair at their school, and somebody from a big tech corporation or a big pharma type corporation sees them right there. They know what school they're graduating from. You come to me with a degree from this school. I know you're the real deal for an, an entry level position for what I want to do. Yeah. When you graduate, you're hired. Is not uncommon for certain fields. The government, it's a nine month slog to find your way in. Some special positions, some special, some agencies have some <clears throat> have some wherewithal to do it faster. But that is not the average experience. Yeah. And while they'd love to support their support their country, they got to close the deal because everybody's got loans. And everybody's got often families to take care of, and they can't wait. In that way, we lose out on people because we can't close the deal fast enough. So what this means is making the federal, making government service or public service more competitive with the civilian sector. Can't be. They can. I would dare say they can never be the same. Yeah. Because of the you know the public responsibility you know um, that we have and using the taxpayer dollar, but have to be more competitive. For instance, that we don't advertise in the way. Yeah. That's out there. The federal agencies are very restricted in how they reach out to people and recruiting and the like. So, our country is at a disadvantage when competing to get our citizens to help their fellow citizens. And very that good makes point. It, that, ma that makes it awkward. And it is not just limited to public service or national service. We found that that in trying to anticipate what's going to happen and how we should prepare the military for future activities. We started looking at things like military critical skills. And there are a lot of those, that, some of which we are aware of now, 
But there are going to be skills of the future we don't, don't even know about that are going to be needed. I mean, look at the advancements taking place in the Corps in the last 10, 20 years. I can go further back than that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I remember, you know, firing the M14 and we got to 16 and then on and on. So there is, uh, as the world is changing, as war is changing, as um, we are fighting not nations, but I, the, uh, the Ideas. dialogues uh, of, of those. Technology. Precisely. Yeah. Everything is changing. And we need to be prepared not to be able to react to that, but to be in a proactive mode. And that's going to require some real serious thought about what are the critical skills and how can we tap into those. And that's where it kind of ties into the back to the selective service. If we do registration, should we also explore ways of identifying the skill sets that they have? And that opens up a whole nother series of, of thoughts that we need to think about in terms of of how do we do the registration? Is it simple uh, name, uh, address, and phone number, and contact information? Is that going to be sufficient for meeting the needs should, God forbid, ever a draft be required? Uh, you guys are also talking about uh, establish a norm for every American to devote at least a full year to either military, national, or public service and require all Americans to serve, require all Americans to serve with a choice and I think these are key. I'm just I'm highlighting key, key words require all Americans to serve with a choice and how to satisfy the requirement. We're looking at uh, as a commission, we're looking at whether or not uh, mandatory service or voluntary service. And we're still debating that issue. Uh, we, we have to produce a final report um, uh, to the president and Congress um, by March of 2020. Gotcha. Uh, but we are exploring uh, what what is fairly unique in America. Uh, Americans, for the most part, do not like to be told what to do. No, the uh, last people that told us try to do that, we shot at them for eight years. Precisely, yeah. and, and <laughs> uh, you know that that has not gone away. Uh, De Tocqueville visited America from France and and toured our country and was. Re was amazed by the sense of volunteerism that existed in America. Oh, wow. People helping each other. As we toured the country, we found that that has not gone away. In fact, it does exist in so many different forms and shapes and, and fashions, and they don't even think it's volunteering. They see no, it just as helping your, you're helping your neighbor. Yeah. 160 million people providing meals to people that don't eat. Uh, so that's that is remarkable, and it still is true today. Uh, and as we traveled, uh, I was very uh, re-inspired by the nature of our country. There are some darn good people out there, uh, and it's the bulk of the people. It's yeah. not what you hear in the news. It's it's yeah. just people that that do the right thing because it is the right thing to do, and that it just makes me feel blessed to be an American. Absolutely. I think if you stay in the beltway long enough, you kind of lose that sense. Um, as you know, as great as DC is, you sometimes you'll lose that sense. I think uh, back in 2009, I was at the Pentagon and uh, I had kind of lost. I was like, man, do people even remember that we're still at war? You know, and, and you get that kind of negative perception about the public in the beltway. And then you go outside to Pennsylvania to a funeral 
or you go to South Carolina for for people that are just wanting to do something for for an active duty military member. And uh, I think you're right. I think it kind of reinvigorates why you're doing what you're doing here in the Beltway. For many years, I I live in Los Angeles, so I would fly from Los Angeles to the, the Pentagon or the Department of Energy or uh, this commission or the Selective Service in my various capacities. So I was always at 35,000 feet going across the United States. And when I was at the Department of Energy, I made a decision to drive from Los Angeles, California, out to Washington, D.C., because we had sites, energy sites all along. Lawrence Livermore, uh, there were sites in Tennessee and other places. So I was able to do that in in, uh, Albuquerque. Los Alamos and some other places. So I was able to do that, but this time I didn't, you know, put my head down and drive 80 miles an hour. If I saw something and it interested me, I stopped, which mm-hmm. I never, ever do. And uh, I would stop at, at mom and pop stores yeah. and just talk to the locals. And believe me, there is a remarkable difference between inside the Beltway, where we are sequestered. And the world that's really out there that is the United States of America. Yeah. And as I say, there, there were volunteer firefighters that volunteered. They, they drop everything they had. If a fire started, the boss didn't complain because he or she knew that that, that was a needed community activity. So they didn't complain. People would drop what they were doing, go out, put out the fire, come back, resume their duties, and not think a thing about it in terms of volunteerism. But think how many times that's replicated. I'm from Los Angeles. I can take you to places now where ash is everywhere. And thank God for the firefighters and the first responders, or uh, or we probably wouldn't even be a, yeah. a state any longer. Um, that's remarkable. I love that. Thank you. I love that. Um, other options you guys are considering? Expanding the registration requirement for selective service to include women. Because yeah, we talked about that's not a. Is that still a discussion? Is that a is that a recommendation you guys are prepared to make or not? It's one we have to make. Yeah, it's part of our mandate. Is whether or not if it should be if the selective service system should endure. Yeah. Should registration be changed, or should or should it even be kept? Is another question too. Yeah, should you selective service even be even kept? But if it's kept, should it include you can, women? You can still have. It's it's legal. Conscription into the military in the time of an emergency is is constitutional. Supreme yep. Court's ruled on that. You don't have to have a selective service system just sitting by if you don't want one. The country has decided for decades that that is of strategic value to the United States to have an organization ready to implement that. The other question is, do you have to have an ongoing active registry as part of your strategic ability? The determination has been yes. So we've been asked to look at all those questions. Is draft still worthwhile? Do you need a selective service system? Should there be a registration prior to any use? And then if so, who should be in there? Which, I, as I mentioned before, is the core question that was brought to the fore. Because there are actually a couple of court cases right now working their way through the federal court system. Gotcha. Challenging the constitutionality of only men being required to register. Hmm. One by people from the, the side of men saying it's unfair to men that they're the only ones who can, and one on the side of women saying it's unfair that women are not asked to contribute. 
So are we going to, have we made a decision on that or is that going to say, Hey, wait until 2020? Well, there'll be a recommendation in March of 2020. We're still in our deliberative phase. Makes sense. Yeah. No worries that I'd get a a little, that is, that is one where we're proud to have listened to a lot of folks on that one. And there's, that is, that is not a, um, that is one that's one of the more closely contested or people on both sides with very earnest and deeply felt positions about whether or not. I think that's a, I think that's a conversation a lot of people have had, you know, whether A or B. Um, and that's, I, and it goes into a lot of the, um, one of the, one of the difficulties in having those conversations as some of the topics my colleague has mentioned before is that um, a lot of folks don't have a decent understanding of the military at all. Yeah. So what people do, how many fo- how many positions in the military are direct com- combat, how many positions in the military are not, what the nature of warfare is nowadays. doesn't matter what kind of position, what MOS, you can take in- incoming in any role, depending upon where you are and what you're doing. Yeah. Then whether or not registering for the draft, registering for selective service means that everybody on that list automatically gets sucked into uniform if a draft is invoked. Not at all. I remember this conversation, I think right around the time this commission was started. I think it was just a hot topic at the time. Sure was. And, uh, you know, conversations of like, well, you know, and, and I love that the fact that the commission can look into, into other areas of, um, okay, well, how am I going to try to say this? Have look at other areas of the country and the fact that like, okay, should everybody serve or not in the military? I think that was a hot button topic. And then it was like, okay, well, what about the health of America? Could everybody physically serve in the military? Well, if not, is there another way that they can serve? And I think that's, you guys are in the middle of answering that question. I think that's so cool. That's one of the big factors, if, if I could, is that most folks think that everybody on the street is subject to it. Well, people only have to register between, the, right now men have to register between the ages of 18 to 25. That oh, doesn't wow. mean those are the only ones who could be called. That are in the pool, yeah. During World War II, the age crept up <laughs> and generally it's unlikely that 18 year olds would be immediately drafted because people with a little bit more maturity tend to do better and be more successful. Yeah. Especially as the Marine Corps itself is actually for the first time in decades deliberately getting older because the commandant of successive commandants of the Marine Corps have decided I need Marines that, that are, are a little mature. that are a little bit more mature because they're asking they're being asked to do so much. And individual Marines are actually that much more critical as individuals with all the tasks that they need to be doing, you know, from riflemen on to whoever in the technical, the very technical specialties. Being a rifleman is a highly technical specialty Yeah. now, yeah. you know, so the, the value of maturity and all that comes into play. So just because the, you have to register by 25 doesn't mean you still might not be draftable by later on. But at the same time, barely three in 10 Americans are qualified to serve in uniform. You've got physical requirements, health and the like. Can you, do you have the educational requirements? Then you have the what are called the moral things. Do you have any criminal issues and, and like like that? Barely three in 10 Americans meet those. Right now, you could raise that bar a little bit by going, we don't care about tattoos. Okay, you have a whole slew of misdemeanors where you know we wouldn't have taken you in all-volunteer force, but this is an emergency and maybe we'll take people with a slightly less good record. But even then, you don't move the bar that much because, as we all know, America is a less healthy and less fit nation yeah. than it was several decades ago. A lot of ago. fiscal requirements. So, yeah. so the number of people that could be potentially subject to a draft is relatively small if it were to happen. And then at the same time, that whole cohort, everybody that's the 30% of people under age 
30 say, they're not all going in, hopefully. <laughs> but then it would be the lottery system, which has always been done. People from a certain birthday, from a certain year, yeah. and like, and get processed through. So there's a lot of misconceptions. All of a sudden, people get sucked out of the system automatically without any consideration. There are exemptions and deferments. Are you the sole provider for a family? Yeah. Are you the sole survivor of a family in some ways? Or do you have consciousness projections? So you're Are, looking at all those regulations. The selective 100%. service. The selective service part of that. They have commission. to execute those things, make considerations to those. And those things aren't understood when people come to the table and say, what do you think about it? And they say, well, I wouldn't want to see everybody go. Well, actually... It's, it's a very serious question is whether or not someone would be conscripted, compelled to serve in the military or... Absolutely. You know, it's not to ever sell that part of it short, but there's a there's a real lack of understanding of how... It's a very complicated process. Yeah. In actuality, people think that, you know, you get a postcard or an, e or an email saying report and that's it. it would, it's not like that at all. Mm -hmm. report to be screened. <laughs> yeah, and people don't... Uh, also don't... Are unaware that the selective service system has some 11,000 volunteers that serve in, uh, th throughout the United States and the territories uh, on what we call uh, selective service boards. These are people from the community uh, that generally serve up to 20 years. And they have been trained every single year on different phases of how, if somebody becomes before the board, how to determine whether or not they are, in fact, a conscientious objector. Uh, some people think that all they have to do is declare that they're a conscientious objector. But um, what they don't understand is these people, five to seven people on a board, know that individual. They know their parents because they come from the local community. And they, they pretty much reach uh, agreement as to whether or not that person has demonstrated a, a religious background demonstrated through their life. Um, so you, one cannot just automatically say I'm a conscientious objector be accepted as such. Then, even if somebody is a conscientious objector, a lot of people are not aware that they, they have to serve in an alternative work service program of two years, which the selective service monitors. Oh, wow. I did so, not know that. Yeah. A lot of people don't know it. Um, and that's why I'd like to bring it to the forefront. There's a lot of... And then... If we keep selective service and expand it to include women, how does that impact the children that they have? Yeah. Uh, so that opens up a whole nother the consideration in terms support. of of you know single mothers as single fathers, child support, all those kinds of dimensions that didn't exist. In, in the history of selective service. The, the American so family those of are the kinds of things that we're going to have. is not the American family of 1960 or 1970. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I know you've already asked this. Or I know you've already answered this um, many times, but that's, that's great. How long do you have to gather feedback? Uh, we have until December the 31st of 2019 and people can provide feedback via www.inspiretheletter2serve.gov. Uh, and, and please do so. I would also add that we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, and YouTube. And we're on LinkedIn as well at Inspire the Number 2 Serve US. 
on social media. And they can, you could solicit comments from there as well as data? Anywhere you can find us in the, in oh, the wow. World Wide Webs, you can make a post. What happens after the deadline and the, com and the commission dissolves? So like when do you, because you guys dissolve in 2020? 2020, uh, we, we are trying to put into place uh, that, those actions and activities that will enable the commission to go beyond its lifespan. Um, because the kinds of things that we intend to recommend are going to be far-reaching. Uh, and I, some of the considerations that we're looking at now will probably go into the year 2030, 2040, yeah. and beyond. You're talking about affecting families. You're talking about affecting every almost every American citizen. Exactly. So you've you got to be able to study the, the after effects so, so you can no, – no plan's perfect. Right. So you got to be able to monitor it and be able to make changes. Exactly. Some of them are also generational type changes in terms of yeah. civics education for young people to be better participants in their government, expanding if Congress were to decide if we recommend to increase the number of positions or, or the, number, the amount of funding to certain programs, those don't happen overnight. And generally, those things are phased in over time. And one of the big things about national service for instance, is you gain secondary and third effects, not just from the work that people do where you get at least a four to one return on the dollar invested, but then people who serve other people to include church service and Rotarians and the like. On average, you're a healthier person because you just feel better and you do things. Yeah. On average. Doing, doing stuff for other people feels good. And, and the doctors, there's there's lines of medical study now that recognize that in senior people. A lot of senior people volunteer with other seniors or with young people. Those people are healthier. People also that volunteer tend to be more socially active, civic active, better voters, more regular voters, and care about the issues in their community in that way. So those kind of things are to everyone's benefit when more people get those opportunities. So a lot of the things are those kind of secondary effects where the body politic, the citizenry come out healthier in the end. It's not just that the young people, the younger people in the Conservation Corps helped deal with the aftermaths, aftermaths of a hurricane or a flood or that those folks help deal with the problem that's years long, but they help deal with an opioid crisis or they help teach schools that needed additional help. But then what those people get and the folks that they work with might be inspired and likely are inspired to do good as well because they've been shown a way of living yeah. in that way. So we're talking about, in some cases, a lot of immediate procedural policy and legal changes, like especially with the federal government, a lot of fixes there with civil service. But a lot of them is turning the Titanic and putting it on a course away from the icebergs yeah. to keep moving out into a healthier, a healthier space over time. Roger. And I would say our final report, our, our uh, comments window, public comments end December 31st, but our report is due to Congress in March of 2020. So that'll go up and right before then and afterwards, the commissioners, the commission will be out around the country. Everyone will have the opportunity to pull that report down off of the web, off of our social media sites. So that's Hopefully, when you start seeing the, the news tour. The news bit. tour going out there, getting that. We will turn in our homework and take our beatings from all the different folks. <laughs> but at the same time, the individual citizens, veterans, particularly listeners of this pod, will have the opportunity to look at our report, look at the recommendations. You're looking at our interim report and the summary of that. Yeah. We'll have the final report. There'll be dozens and dozens of very discreet recommendations as well as some big picture we can do better ideas, and then they can engage their 
members of Congress, their senators, as well as their governors and their state legislators, because there's things in there with regard to state programs and state education and the like, because it's not just the federal level. What I, what I love about um, podcasting in general is that it's almost like a living record. So any armchair quarterbacks that come out in 2020 can always refer to back to this, go, okay, how did they get this? You commissioners and your staff can always look at it and go, hey, refer to this podcast. This is how it was done. Because we talked about you guys just doing the census and everything. You know, it's, it's great. And that's why we appreciate this opportunity Absolutely. so much, Tanner. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so now let's get back to why you're on the podcast in general. Um, you're looking for feedback from veterans, right? Where can they go? Why? Why veterans? Why you guys? Why you guys want to come on board the battle? Uh, I, th- I, I uh, we value the input that veterans provide because they've already stepped up to the line. Where can they provide feedback? And I know Ed, I love, I love. I'm going to keep asking because I love. I know that you're going to plug it. Uh, where can they go to provide feedback? How long do they have to do it? And um, how can they get input out to you? Thank you for asking that question. Uh, we have uh, up until. 31 December of this year, 2019, to get feedback on our website of www.inspire2serve.gov. And on social media, Inspire to Serve US, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. And I'm sure on all those platforms and on that website, they can look for whatever kind of topic you need input on, right? So right. you. Um, is there anything else that I might have missed from either of you that you think is important to share? I don't know that the dead horse can be beaten too much, but it really is about hearing from people because people all have the, the stories in their their stories and their experiences are valuable. Every individual one of them as to what they're concerned about, what they've seen work, what they've experienced that should be fixed. All of those matter because they add up in that way. Um, and I'll share a second one that I, I'm glad I remembered I wrote down. Um, there has been an event the last couple of days on the Hill um, called Hill Vets Homefront. Um, and uh, I, I caught on the social media a quote attributed to um, the former chief of staff of the Army, General George Casey, which really caught my eye. Also been on the show. So General Casey um, is attributed as saying by someone I trust, um, two veterans, don't let your military service be the greatest thing you've ever done. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And some people might find that striking, that a that a chief of staff of the army would say, "Don't let the military service be the greater thing." But I think it's part of that issue of we've talked about second service and why do people serve in different ways? Is that once you get a taste of it, you understand yourself better, you understand your capabilities, you understand what it means to be a team and how you can make a difference. And that we all leave. I had a great commanding officer who said, "We are all leaving the Navy at one time or another." Yeah. You might decide as an individual, the Navy might decide it's time for you to leave the Navy, but we're all going to leave. And you have to think about what you want to do afterwards and why. Yeah. And there's so most for most people, there's only that 0.1% that spend virtually the most of their professional life in uniform. The majority of us do not. Yeah. We spend much more time out of uniform than we do in. The story should not stop. Don't get into that... Uh high school quarterback syndrome yeah you know like that was the that was the greatest time of my era there you you still got a lot of life left you know let it let it enhance you but not define you that's exactly right service is a valued effort 
It is a much needed effort, especially in our country today. This has been a tremendous learning experience for me. I've been around DC since 64. And, you know, I think I've been there, done that, and oh, are you kidding? This has been a tremendous experience uh, to me, not only for the opportunity of working with such people as Sean and the other commissioners, but also the splendid staff we had. Uh, these people uh, did something I'm not sure I would have done at their stage in, in their career. They have volunteered. You might as well say they volunteered to work yeah. for us for three years with no guarantee for any follow-up whatsoever. So they've taken a three-year hiatus from their careers to dedicate their time, energy, efforts, and talents to what I feel is a very noteworthy cause. And, our and there's, not, there's not even a chance for reenlistment. Not even a chance to <laughs> sign back up, you know? And not, as of right now. Yeah, as of right now, that's true. But the point is that they're willing to make that after extra effort. And that's indicative of public service that we have in, in the United States of American government. And not only that, but in we have people going to foreign countries, spending years in very destitute situations. You don't have to go to a foreign country. We have places in America that you know require a massive sacrifice of time, energy, and talents, and, and frankly, income. Uh, but they're willing to do it. And that's, that's remarkable in the United States of America. And that's why I love it. <laughs> my grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. I want to thank Ed and Sean for coming on Born the Battle. Again, like Ed said many times, <laughs> you can give your own input on all these questions that they have to answer co to Congress at inspire to serve that's all one word with the number two, don't spell it out, inspire to serve.gov. On there, you can submit a comment or go on their social media handles. They're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and plenty of others. Usually their handle is also inspire to serve, all one word number with, um, with the number two, don't spell it out. Uh, again, you have until the end of the year, again, the end of the year, so like two weeks to give Sean and Ed your input on public and selective service. So it was recently the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, and I want to reserve this week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week to any veteran who took part in that hellacious battle. To all the men and women who took part in the effort to repel Hitler's last offensive, we honor your service. That's it for this week's episode. Again, this is the last full episode of the year. Got a couple of bonuses coming out that we didn't get to air throughout the year uh, that we'll be, that we be posting on Christmas and the new year. And then we'll be coming right back with a full slate of episodes towards the beginning of the year. Uh, new episodes will fire up again either on January 15th or January 22nd, depending on our workflow and workload here at the VA. So in the meantime... For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, 
You can check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you, as always, for listening. Have a happy, happy holiday season. Have a safe new year, and we'll see you again soon.